You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead, the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Today's date is December 27th, 2022. I hope that everybody had a great Christmas, and, and we're wishing you a happy new year here from Smeet Capital Management. Investors and people we meet with often ask us about books we're reading and want to know, you know what we're diving into because we love books. This is our quarterly episode just to talk about books, books, and even more books. Joining me to talk about our reading list is our chief investment officer and chairman, my dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me, dad. Great to be with you once again, Cole. I'm excited to talk about what we're reading. Um, I know we're going to have fun like we did last time. Uh, Seamus joined us last time. It's just Bill and I today. So you you guys will have to put up with us. Um, So why don't we kick it off? Uh, Let's start out with uh, books you just got done reading. What's on your list, Bill? Well, the first one is Great Society by Amity Schles. We'll be with her in February. The way that history rhymes, rather than repeating itself exactly, is something that you have to trust in investing. And her books do a great job of teaching you what you want to learn from various historical time periods. So, so in the book, are there certain characters or certain events that really jump out to you from the book? Well, first off, you have to understand the 1960s We had major race riots in the 1960s. We had the space program going on. We had a go-go stock market excitement associated with the technology that came out of the space program. And then you had the Vietnam War going on simultaneously. So what happened was we got into one of those modes where it seemed that the federal government felt that their responsibility was to solve everyone's problems. And you obviously had JFK followed by LBJ and then Richard Nixon. So it was both both sides of the aisle. Um, and when Bill says Amity Schles will be joining us in February for our listeners, he's talking about the Smead Investor Oasis, which will be February 6th, 2023 here in Scottsdale, Arizona. If you're an investor and you'd like more information, you can go to smeadcap.com slash oasis. Again, that's smeadcap.com slash oasis. So what, what else? what else have you just finished reading? Well, speaking of my segment of what I'm going to talk about at the Oasis, I read a book called The Complete Investor by Tran Griffin, which is really about Charlie Munger. I have been making the argument that the markets had shifted away from Ben Graham to Charlie Munger for really two, three, four decades, making it the most attractive to pay a reasonable price for a great, wide moat, great brand business. And the problem is that I reviewed that so that I could understand that any good investment discipline can get overcooked, whether it's Jack Bogle's indexing of the S&P 500 index, whether it be Warren Buffett's approach, 
regardless of whose approach it is, if everyone decides to do that approach, it ends up taking away all potential enjoyment or success over the following time period. So what we're arguing in my talk is that you have to go back closer to Ben Graham to get the money that will be made the next five to 10 years. And then any others? Uh, well, we read Hagstrom's book, uh, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mine, and it never fails. It's always a great idea, whether through Hagstrom or Trent Griffin or who, to constantly review and think about situations that Buffett and, and Munger have succeeded or failed on and then use that and ask yourself, okay, what are we seeing right now that those prior episodes would be useful? Yeah, and, and to follow on that, we actually have a, a podcast episode coming out here in early January with Hagstrom on his book, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind. I actually just got done reading that book as well. I, I think what I found interesting, you know, as I, I think back about the book is I, there's obviously a lot of details of Buffett's life that's in that that you can get from other books like Snowball from Alice Schroeder, for example. But in, in kind of like thinking about it, it's kind of a culmination book where it takes our prior episode uh, and book that we did with Hegstrom, which was Investing in the Last Liberal Art, and he takes that and kind of weaves it into some of his prior writing on Buffett. For example, he has another book out there called The Essential Buffett, and he weaves them together. For example, he talks about uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and his, and his philosophical thoughts, and really that was an embodiment of, of Warren's dad, Howard Buffett, um, where it was very much pick yourself up by the bootstraps, kind of a Nebraskan mentality. So I, th I found that really interesting. At the same time, uh, you know, what you get conclusions, it, it's not a book that gives you the answer. And I think that was something we drew out of our, our conversation because, for example, we go through that book, you know, I think, Bill, you and I draw something completely different than Robert does out of a lot of that, even at a time like right now. So, um, so I think it highlights the, you know, we're not going to give you the answer, but we're going to make you think is an important thing. I have to give you a, a little plug there, Cole. Uh, Cole and I are both familiar and have read Phil Carey's book. And <laughs> I know you're going to say money mind yeah. was invented by Phil Caray. Well, yeah. And, and, and Robert used that in his title because it's something Buffett talks about, but really Buffett got that from Phil Caray. Yeah. So, so to, to follow on that. So one of the, and I'll kind of tease the, the podcast episode a little bit with this, but obviously he uses this term inside the ultimate money mind as the subtitle to his book. And so one of the first questions I asked um, that, that when we released this, I asked the question around, well, are you aware that if Phil Caray wrote a book, an autobiography about himself, A Money Mind at 90 is the name of the book. And just so all of our listeners know, Phil Caray is, wrote another book a long time before that called The Art of Speculation. And so I say that because I posed that question to Robert and he let us know. And, and, and by the way, I appreciate his intellectual honesty to share this. But he actually had not been made aware of that term, you know, a money mind uh, in, in relation to Phil Caray until after he'd published his book and he read that book following that. And by the way, um, for our listeners, if you, if you don't know who Phil Caray is, I would highly, highly recommend go to CNBC.com, look up the old Berkshire Hathaway 1990s meetings that they have from the 1990s because Buffett often would stop meetings back then and say, oh, Phil Caray's here in the crowd. I'm a big fan of his, and he's a true and kind of one of the great investors out there, and I, I'm a huge fan of his. And Buffett would comment on Phil Caray. And so I just I point that out because to Bill's point, 
we love books. And so here we are like, oh, you know, this book is probably has to do with this book. And sometimes you find out that that's not true. <laughs> and, at eight, and at age 64, I can tell you that I've already reestablished all my goals. I would just like to make it to 90 with a money Oh mind. yeah, no question. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or even half a mind at 90, right? You know, yeah. um, the other book I just got done reading, which is just, I mean, I, I cannot speak more highly of the thinking. It's a very high level book. Um, when it comes to, you know, how, how you need to resort your thinking. But the, the book is Superabundance by Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley. I actually became aware of the book through, I'm on the board of Discovery Institute, which is a think tank in Seattle. Gail Pooley, uh, I didn't know this, but was he's a, a senior fellow there at Discovery. And him and Marion Tupi wrote this book, uh, Superabundance. When you hear that title, you just think, oh, this is kind of like a very optimistic, you know, kind of a title. I tend to get scared of those. But what their, their, their core thesis is that things have got a lot better over time. And what their real uh, research that they did was that instead of using like inflation-adjusted terms on goods, um, what they do is that they use time prices. So for example, what they'll do is they'll take and say, okay, what was the price of a good in 1960? And what was the unskilled laborer making in 1960 per hour? And let's price the good based on their time. Okay, And then let's compare that to, say, 10 years later or 20 years later, 50 years later. And what they show in the evidence of their book is that in time prices, things are becoming more abundant or what they argue is super abundant. That's how they kind of build their thesis out from this time prices. It's wonderful work. Economics has constantly blessed us with improved circumstances. Correct. With major occasional interruptions. But here's, here's what I really look at it as. Now, when I, I got done reading the book, and they, they do a really good job, I would say, giving the history of the anti-abundance argue, a.k.a. Thomas Malthus, for example, and Malthusian thinkers like Paul Ehrlich and so on and so forth. And, and, I, and, we're, and just so all of our listeners know, Gail Pooley um, did a podcast with us that will be released in later January where we got to talk a lot about this. So I really highly recommend, um, because I, I think, Bill, in, like, in the, among, you know, in the developed world and people that we might run into it, in similar circles or situations that are wealthy, I think the big lie that Malthus has put out there is that if you don't have children, you'll be wealthier. That's that, and by the way, many people believe and think that. Okay, now, what I walked away from their book thinking is, well, I might have had you know, $100 million net worth. Let's just theoretically say I had $100 million net worth in 1970. On that net worth, I never had an iPhone, okay? I never had a lot of the benefits I have in information and other things. You had four TV channels to watch. Correct. So, so here's where that, that all falls short. You might be wealthier, but if we as a society and people in humanity or individuals don't take the task to have children our lives will be worse 40 years from now. In other words, the quality of life, the standard of living. So that's the one thing. The other thing I, I walked away thinking is if someone said, Cole, the Bible says, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion. Is there any way to prove this economically, philosophically, et cetera? I'd say, yeah, go read Superabundance by Marion Tuby and Gail Pooley. So I, I, I walked away with this overwhelming sense of the data is proving exactly what the mandate is. And I think, I think it's a really fun, and by the way, I would say if you read their writing, it is a secular book. 
it does not come at that from a biblical perspective whatsoever. They talk about all religions in the book. So I, I, I highly recommend the data in that book. So before I bubble too much about that uh, anymore, let's pivot to what we're currently reading. What, what are you currently working on, Bill? Well, I'm, I'm reading Shut Up and Keep Talking by Bob Pisani. We started interacting with uh, CNBC maybe uh, 14, 15 yeah, years ago. Like and Bob Pisani has been an, a very enjoyable professional to observe. And, and he, uh, he's written this book very chronologically. So his interactions with traders and important people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as the reporter on the floor, his feel for learning about trading and getting a sense of the feeling you get from, from different markets is it's just fascinating. It's very enjoyable. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun talking through some of the segments in the book. He's got great If we get a ca- chance characters. to talk to him. <laughs> Yeah. John Mulhern, a great trader, he mentions. He, he talked with Walter Cronkite on the floor. A bunch of amazing people, amazing characters, Art Cashin and others, and doing it in a chronological way teaches us some of the rhymes. For example, he's got a bunch on the dot-com bubble. And as we watched the NASDAQ get tortured this year, and we, we would guess probably next year as well, based on history, we would say it's a good time to go back and, and examine the time period it took to squeeze the life out of the financial euphoria episode called the dot-com bubble. And then what else do you have? Uh, we, we've got How to Invest, Masters on the Craft by David Rubenstein, not necessarily philosophical investor matching up with us, but yet he did interviewed Buffett and has a lot of great thinkers in there. And I'm really looking forward to getting to that as soon as I finish up with Bob. And then any, any others? Well, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, both philosophically and from a, from a religion standpoint, just a great exercise regardless of where you come from. Yeah, so let's see. So I'm you had already finished this, but I'm actually in the process of finishing Great Society by Amity Schlaes. The you didn't share this story, so I will. Uh, Bill and I are both Whitman College alums. There at Whitman College is a, a building called Cordner Hall, and it's kind of where they host the you know the baccalaureate ceremonies and everything big and kind of the pomp and circumstance type of uh, events. Cordner Hall is named after a guy named Ralph Cordner, who I had known that he was a GE executive. I didn't know he was the CEO of GE in the 1960s. Well, Amity Schles opens up early in her book using Ralph Cordner as this central character in the kind of the capitalistic attitudes that wanted to fight back at the government largesse that had transpired post-World War II. And, and I think she does a good job of explaining that this came up because government got big because of the war and the government continued to stay big because of just Americans' unwillingness to kind of make changes you know, because of the war having so much success and, and, and kind of the momentum of that. But why Ralph Cordner's interesting is because GE was a vast company even at that time. And so to think that GE had to fight socialistic attitudes as a company, you know, they don't ever get credit, I guess, for that investment they made, right? In other words, they were going out to try to protect free markets in a way. And one of the guys that Ralph Cordner ends up hiring, who by this time was not much of an actor, uh, was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was a paid consultant. They would hire Ronnie to come in and do go to factory meetings, you know, factory visits and whatnot. And it said, she wrote that when Ronnie would show up, the women would kind of be all excited for Ronnie being there because it's Ronnie. 
um, is this Hollywood guy. And the guys weren't very excited about Ronnie being there. And, and they had some, you know, some unscrupulous words they might uh, use to, you know, describe him. But then by the time he was done, the women were still very excited to talk to Ronnie and the guys were slapping him on the back. And so that really begat Ronald Reagan's career politically. Yeah, Cordner built his career. Correct. So, so, so I, it, it's interesting to hear that story. You know, I, I, obviously everybody talks about Reagan, but no one talks about the precursor to his political career before he was governor of California, before he became president. But by the way, just on that note, to connect Cole and me and our lifespan, uh, I saw Al Stewart on the Year of the Cat tour in my freshman year in college at Cordner Hall at Whitman College. Yeah. So, um, and by the way, I, you know, I don't think anybody at our call at the college say even knows who Ralph Cordner is. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> or, uh, or would like to know. Yeah. Or would like to know. So, uh, let's see. So the, uh, other, uh, other books I've cracked open and I'm in, um, the globalization myth by Shannon K. O'Neill, her thesis and, and what she describes and, and talks about the book is that the idea that, you know, these, these countries are going around the world to do all their business is just not true. Um, using Europe and Asia particularly, um, what you can see is it's regionalization. You know, it's you doing business with people on the other side of your border. And, and what it also does, a really good job explains, it explains the supply chain. So when Boeing comes out and says, oh, we're doing business in 52 countries. Well, even in a company like that, that sounds big, but the reality is they're doing a lot of work with countries right near them. And so it's just an interesting way to think about the supply chain problem we're having. Interesting way to think about is the United States doing business halfway around the world or is it really just doing a lot more business with Mexico and Canada? Um, and, and she does talk about NAFTA in that book. Other books I've cracked open, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by Margaret O'Mara. Margaret is the, I think she's the, if I remember correctly, she's the bullet chair of history, uh, Dorothy bullet chair of yeah. history, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for Seattle people like us um, at the University of Washington. Her, her book is The History of Silicon Valley, you know, how it came about, how this place in California came to what it is. And then also its relationship with Washington, D.C., which is very interesting as we think about regulation today. And, I, and, and so I, I, I throw that book out there. I'm early in it, but, it, but I just, the fact that we have great history in that. And then, and then the other book that we're obviously in, both Bill and I, is uh, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And, and what I like about Packer's book is he, he deals on such a range of topics where from one topic it might be, okay, you're someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. Here's a context for thinking about it all the way out to here's why Christians are idiots. Um, and so that's the, the great part is he's got, he's got something to, to help everyone in there. Yeah. The, the, on the Silicon Valley, what people don't maybe realize is whatever works in business, whatever creates affluence begins to dictate to the culture what people ought to think and how, how they ought to live, et cetera. And this book is probably going to do a great job of dispelling some myths. I, do as I say, not as I do is probably going to be a better approach. And then lastly, uh, books that we've had recommended or ones that you've bought and you just haven't opened up yet. So uh, what I, I'll, I'll jump into this first. Um, I, have a, I have a few that I just bought. I just got in, actually. Um, Adam Smith's America by Glory M. Liu. That book is about the other writings that that uh, Adam Smith had. So, you know, she gets to really the more human side of Adam Smith uh, in her book, which was an interesting perspective. The other books I, I just bought, Decisions Over Decimals by Chris Frank, Paul Magnone, and Oded Netzer. Um, the Sassoons by Joe Sassoon, which was a very wealthy Jewish banking family. And then lastly, another book that I haven't cracked yet that I bought is Money and Empire 
Charles P. Kindleberger and the Dollar System by Perry Merling. How about you, Bill? Well, someone as a gift here prior to Christmas has given me Breath from Salt by Bajol Tuvedi. And uh, what I like about it, it's gonna force me to delve into one of my weak spots, which is I'm not a big science guy. And there's some, there's just some great science that I'm gonna have to dig into there. Awesome. And let's see, we had a couple of shout outs here. These are book recommendations we got. Let's see. So on Twitter, the Twitter handle at Outspoken Geek sent me a, a message at, telling us to check out The Great Demographic Reversal is the book that he recommended. I, I think the general thesis is like, what do we do when we go from a growing demographic to a, a decreasing demographic tied to, you know, the aging population of the developed world? So we just wanted to note that. And then uh, also... A friend of ours, Matt from Bellevue, Washington, recommended a few books to us, but the one that caught my eye was Fossil Future by Alex Epstein, which I, I haven't uh, taken a look at any of the reviews on or haven't even bought. But I've just seen Alex Epstein out on Twitter, and he's got some interesting thoughts. And obviously, um, you know, with the, you know, the debate going on in a carbon future, you know, we own a lot of energy businesses, so interested to see some of the arguments uh, that he makes for that. Yeah, on, on that demographic reversal one of our positions has been optimism about what the large millennial group will do in the United States because it's quite a bit bigger than the prior group. And so I'll be interested to, to see what comes out of, there's an assumption that we are going to end up doing an aging society. Well, well yeah, and, and to connect that up, in superabundance, one of Gail and Marion said, because we've had this blessing, this superabundance from the economics and the commerce that we have and all these things, great things that have happened from people going out and doing their work and endeavoring, that doesn't mean inevitability. And what they meant by that is if you kind of read between the lines is their thesis is more people produces better economics in time prices, by the way. And so the question is, if you don't have children, do you get the better economics? Are we going to go to the dark side? Before I forget, Bill, thanks for joining me. Uh, this has been fun. This is our quarterly reading list. I hope all of our listeners look forward to this. If our listeners have books that they'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. If you want to send in some recommendations, we could probably give a shout out. And uh, we thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. This has been the Smead Book List. We look forward to the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.